As mentioned earlier, the text that we'll be giving our attention to this morning is 1 Kings chapter 3. I won't read that all over again now, but you will probably be helped by having your Bibles open. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the chapter that we just read from 1 Kings chapter 3 is, is one of the most well-known stories of the Old Testament. Indeed, both halves of that chapter are very well known. And one of the reasons that, that these, these two stories in this chapter, first him asking for wisdom and then second his, his treatment of the two prostitutes, one of the reasons that it's so memorable for us is that these, these two stories challenge us. Would we have chosen as Solomon chose? Would we have asked for wisdom if God had offered you anything that you wanted? Would you have chosen wisdom? And the same is true for the second half of the story. If you were confronted by what seems to be an, a, a riddle, a, a story that, that cannot be worked through, how do you know which prostitute is telling the truth? Would you have resolved that? the way that Solomon did. So these stories challenge us. And they give us some of our first glimpses of what this King Solomon would be like. Our first insights into his character. Now in chapter, in chapter 2, we first encounter our new King Solomon. A few weeks ago I was here and we saw chapter 1, how Solomon ascended to the throne in the first place. In chapter 2 you get some of his first decrees, some of his first executive orders, you might say. And it's a bit of a a tough chapter because it leaves you unsure what to think of this King Solomon. David loved him and trusted him. You see that in in chapter 2. He several times urges Solomon to act according to his wisdom. And here in chapter 3, it tells us Solomon loved the Lord. So that that seems to indicate that Solomon was a wise and godly man. But in chapter 2, if you read through chapter 2, you can't help but notice his ruthlessness towards his political opponents. First, there's his brother Adonijah, who he had beaten to the throne. We saw that a few weeks ago. God had brought Adonijah down and brought Solomon up. And Adonijah submitted to that at the end. He begged Solomon for mercy, and Solomon spared his life. But then in chapter 2, Adonijah asked Solomon one small favor if he could have that beautiful girl, uh, what was her name, Uh, Abishag, the Shunammite, who had been David's maid for the last several uh, years. And she hadn't been his wife, they had no relations, so it was a legitimate request as far as that goes. But Solomon interpreted that request as a second attempt to take the throne, and he had his brother Adonijah executed just for asking it. Seems like Solomon is still suspicious, still worried about the future possibilities, whether that was the right way to interpret Adonijah or not. And that's the challenge, was it? It seems like Solomon was being harsh, cruel, unnecessarily so. But on the other hand, Solomon might have been right, in interpreting that request the way that he did. And if he was, then this was a fair response. He had warned his brother not to take any second attempts on the throne. 
And the same can be said for how Solomon deals with his other political enemies in chapter 2. Is he acting in wisdom and godliness or not? It's very hard to tell. I read almost a dozen commentaries as I was working through this chapter, and the commentaries themselves are very deeply divided on this question. Some say he's just being a cold-blooded politician. He's just looking for an excuse to kill any potential enemies. And that's possible. That might have been correct. And then other commentaries are saying, well, maybe he was right. Maybe his interpretations were correct. And if so then he was doing the right thing by having these people executed or banished. And that same problem then of interpretation, it carries over into chapter 3. What do we make of Solomon's first actions in verses 1 through 3? Now that his political enemies are dead, we read about him making an alliance with Egypt by marrying the daughter of Pharaoh. What do we make Of that. Now, some commentaries say, now that has to be wrong. There's no excuse for that because, after all, hadn't God forbidden intermarriage with foreign nations? But that's not exactly accurate either. In fact, God hadn't forbidden all intermarriage with any foreign women, but specifically intermarriage with Canaanite women. In every place where that prohibition is mentioned, there's a list of seven specific nations that they're not to intermarry with. And so we shouldn't overinterpret that against Solomon. That command is repeated in only those two places, and in both places, Egypt is not mentioned as one of those foreign nations. But of course, the, the reason for that prohibition is those women will lead God's people astray, and that would apply just as well to the daughter of Pharaoh, assuming that she wasn't a believer herself, which of course the text doesn't tell us. And it gets even more complicated. The the text doesn't tell us here, but we find out later this wasn't Solomon's first wife either. He had already married an Ammonitess, and he already had a son with her. And so we would ask, well, that certainly makes it wrong, doesn't it? Well, many commentators say yes, others say not necessarily. God hadn't specifically prohibited uh, polygamy. And what complicates the whole question for us is what verse 3 tells us, that Solomon loved the Lord. That's the clearest statement we have in this chapter about Solomon's character. He loved the Lord. Now, the text is honest. He didn't love the Lord perfectly. It says he still sacrificed on the high places, which he shouldn't have done. It should have been before the tabernacle. But the text clearly says he loved the Lord, and Solomon is the only king about which that is said in the entire book of Kings. So here's the point. We would, we would love it if Scripture simply told us what to think about Solomon's actions, but Scripture doesn't tell us, and that's important because it sets the right tone for the chapter ahead of us. This text is about wisdom, and as we read about Solomon's life so far and we struggle over what do we make of this King Solomon, we're taught a very important lesson. Life requires wisdom. See, we would love it if God would just give us a a simple rule book so that every moral dilemma that ever comes up, we could just open it, look it up, and there's, there's the answer. But it doesn't work like that. Life isn't like that. And so as we look at Solomon's life, I think we're supposed to struggle over what to make of his life so far. Did he do the right thing or not in each of these cases? Well, I'm not sure, 
But one thing has been impressed upon us now. Life requires wisdom, and we are all in need of that wisdom. And I think that's where our text wants us to be as we start out. If you have been on consistory for for any length of time, you'll discover this very quickly as well. Life and leadership require a great deal of wisdom. And I can only speak for my own church, but I know our consistory is very aware of the need for more wisdom. And I imagine the same is true here in this church. The answers don't just fall out of the sky in a little parachute. Decisions come that are incredibly difficult to discern. And the elders are are very deeply aware of their need for greater amounts of wisdom. All they can do at times is search God's Word for the guiding principles that they need, and they might not get the clearest answer that they would prefer. And so they pray to Him for wisdom and guidance, and then they have to act according to the best wisdom that God gives them. Which doesn't even always mean that they always come to agreement. They might end still with differing opinions. They might not even always make the right decisions. Discerning the will of God is not an easy matter of black and white. The same principle is true for the the parents here among us. New parents often make the joke, you know, why didn't this kid come with a manual and, and we often wonder, why did God design the world this way, entrusting the most important job in the world, raising the next generation, to people with zero experience? Why does God do this? It leaves parents often wondering whether they're doing the right thing, and those decisions become even more difficult in the teenage years. Life requires wisdom, and most of us recognize we could use a little more wisdom. So the first verses of our text prepare us then for Solomon's encounter with the Lord by teaching us this important lesson that life requires wisdom and wisdom is not something that's easily obtained. You can't take a crash course in wisdom, a wisdom 101 at the nearest university. You can't learn it like that in school or college. It doesn't work like that. There's no wisdom for dummies book available at the bookstore. And yet, wisdom is going to make the difference between a life that is well-lived and a life that is a disaster. So that prepares us for what we read in the next verses. We, we read here in verse, in verse 4 that Solomon went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? This is undoubtedly an amazing offer from God. There probably would have been a thousand things that Solomon would have wanted to ask for. Security would have been very near the top of that list. There was still huge potential for the kingdom to crumble under him with, with various rebellions. And there were also very serious enemies around him. The ancient Near East was not a nice place to live at that time. The empires around were cruel and they were terrifying. Riches would have been an attractive choice as well. Money is power, they say. Long life would have been an attractive choice. And so as I mentioned earlier, this this text offers an implicit challenge to us as readers. When you read this, you can't help but ask yourself, what would I have chosen if God had offered me anything that I wanted? 
Now notice Solomon begins his answer. Before he gets to his answer, he starts by describing God's faithfulness to his father David. You see that in in verse 6. Solomon says, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him and have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So notice how Solomon puts acknowledging God's faithfulness before his request. Just because God has made this amazing offer to him does not mean he can now presume upon God's faithfulness. It's right and it's appropriate to honor God's faithfulness to us before getting to our requests from him. We should do that at the beginning of our prayers. And and Solomon, you'll notice, makes a second observation here, and I believe this is key to understanding his request for wisdom. Notice that that Solomon acknowledges that God's faithfulness to his father David was tied to David's faithful response to God. That's not to say that you know, God only showed as much faithfulness to David as David showed back to God. No, Solomon recognized that, that David had received far more grace than he deserved from God. But at the same time, he recognized that God's blessing and God's favor are tied to our response of faith and obedience. If David had walked away from God for good, then he would have forfeited those promises. And that's what's behind Solomon's prayer for wisdom. He recognized that he too was going to be tested, just like his father David was tested. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but He will surely punish those who turn their back on Him for good. And great responsibilities like kingship offer huge opportunities to ruin oneself and to ruin the kingdom. And so Solomon continues in in verse 8. In verse 7 he says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Now, just, just to be clear, Solomon was not a little child. He was about 21 years old, if you do the math. But it, it's, a, it's a metaphor of his inex- to describe his inexperience. And so he continues, I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be be numbered or counted. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Well, there's several things we should notice from Solomon's request. First, notice he's, he's not praying in his own interest only, but also in the interest of God's people. We saw in verse 3 that Solomon loved the Lord, and there's no such thing as a love for the Lord that doesn't also overflow into a love and concern for God's people. Second, notice that Solomon is deeply aware of his own inadequacy. He prays for wisdom because he knows that he doesn't have it in himself. And he admits that before God. This is the man, after all, who wrote those those famous words in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And so we see him doing exactly that in these verses. He was 
very deeply impressed with the greatness of responsibility that he had from God, and it brought him to his knees before him. There are these moments, aren't there, where when we have great responsibilities entrusted to us. Maybe it's when someone is first ordained to office or I experience it myself having just been ordained as minister. I'm sure your minister senses the same thing. Or we feel it when we first become parents when great responsibility is entrusted on us and these moments bring with, us, uh, bring with them a great sense of inadequacy. A sense of how can I do this great job that God has given me. And that it's good that those emotions accompany those moments. That's a healthy emotion, and we would do well to cultivate those emotions, to keep that sense of the greatness of our responsibilities alive, to remember the seriousness of the callings that each of us have from God. It has a great humbling effect. It causes us to, to seek Him, and that's exactly what we ought to be doing in those times. We're never going to sincerely seek wisdom or ask it from God until we are aware and deeply aware of the fact that we very badly need it and we don't have enough of it. People aren't born wise and people don't become wise automatically with age. Much of Proverbs is a polemic against the fool who trusts in his own wisdom, in his own understanding, who's content with what he already knows. Think of Proverbs 26, verse 12. He says, Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for that man. So we see first Solomon prayed in the interest of God's people. Second, he prayed because he was aware of his own inadequacy. And thirdly, notice exactly what it is that Solomon prays for. He says, give your servant an understanding heart that I may discern between good and evil. Literally, the the Hebrew text says, give your servant a heart that listens. A heart that listens. And that's key to understanding what it is that Solomon is praying for and what it is that the text also then would teach us. See, we often think of of wisdom as sort of synonymous with with knowledge, and that's partly true. Wisdom does contain knowledge, but wisdom is more than knowledge. An essential part of wisdom is a heart attitude that is ready to listen, that is open to hear, wanting to be taught, wanting to understand better. That's wisdom. The Apostle James teaches us in James 1 verse 19, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. See, fools assume that they already know everything that they need to know. And so they're much quicker to jump to conclusions and much quicker to express their emotions. Wisdom knows that there's much that it doesn't yet know. And, and wisdom is therefore eager to learn it. Now, that expression, a heart that listens, it begs the question, listens to, to whom? And I think there's, there's a two-part answer to that question, listens to whom? In the first place, Solomon is being deliberately general here. He's asking for a heart that's eager to listen in general. As ruler and supreme judge over, over Israel, he's going to be faced with many challenging cases. We see that already in the second half of the chapter. And he's going to need to be very good at listening if he's going to make the right 
decisions. Failure to listen, in a general sense, could very easily lead to his downfall. It could ruin his legacy. You might think of Saul, who failed to listen to the counsel of his son Jonathan, who's, who, who warned him to let David go before God's judgment would come against Saul. You might think of Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, who failed to listen to the legitimate concerns of the people and ultimately lost most of the kingdom because he was unable to listen. And so Solomon recognized that leadership was going to require a great deal of wisdom. And the first principle of wisdom is the ability to listen and learn. But now there's, there's a second part answer, or second answer to that question, listens to whom? Because, of course, not all listening is going to lead to wisdom. Simply listening will not make you wise. Proverbs 14, verse 7 says, Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. It's very important to have a heart that's eager to listen in a general sense, But a wise heart also needs to be able to discern where knowledge is going to be found and where it's not. In order to do that, wisdom then needs a higher principle to which it listens above all other voices. If all you had was a heart that's eager to listen, there's still no guarantee that you would become wise. Because there's far more voices shouting folly than there are voices speaking wisdom. In fact, you see that in Proverbs over and over, that wisdom or or folly tends to shout, whereas wisdom speaks. A heart needs to be able to hear the voice of wisdom. True wisdom needs to be able to distinguish between those voices that shout folly and lies, of which there are going to be many in this life, and those that contain wisdom and truth. And to do that then, as I mentioned, wisdom needs a higher principle to which it listens. Some voice to which it listens above all other voices. And that principle is the fear of God. You see that over and over in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first voice to which wisdom's ear is open is the voice of God. That expression, the fear, of, the fear of the Lord, the word fear there doesn't adequately translate the, the concept in the Hebrew. Respect might be a better translation or reverence for God. It doesn't mean fear in the sense that, that one is afraid that God might lash out at any moment unexpectedly because that's not who God is. But fear is, the fear of the Lord is that awe and reverence and careful respect that sinners have before a holy, powerful, just, and righteous God whose ways are higher than our ways, who delights in righteousness and who does not leave the guilty unpunished. That should bring in every believer a sense of fear, a sense of awe and care and respect. That's the fear of the Lord. So it's that that humbling, caution-inducing life-changing recognition that everything that we do and say and even think is done before the face of God who holds us to account. That's that, it's that recognition that we were created by Him and created for Him, that He's the source of all that is right and true. And that, that proverb says, is the beginning of wisdom. So when Solomon here, Solomon prays for a heart that listens, it's a heart that listens in the first place to God himself. 
And you can see that that's on his mind, even by the way that he frames his prayer. As I mentioned earlier, Solomon recognizes that God's faithfulness to David was tied to David's faithful response to God. And so Solomon knew that if his reign was going to succeed, he would need a heart that is ready to listen when God speaks. He needs a heart that relies on God for wisdom. A heart whose whose ear, so to speak, is always open to God's voice. Always ready to hear what God would say. That is essential to true wisdom. Now you see the focus in Solomon's request is the ability to discern between good and evil. Or more literally, as the Hebrew has it, to know good from evil. There's a clinging to the good and a rejection of what is evil. So that's Solomon's prayer. And as I've mentioned, the implicit challenge, of course, is to us, would we have prayed as Solomon prayed? Would we have chosen what Solomon chose? And the text says that God was pleased with Solomon's request. God delighted in Solomon's response. And that's because God delights in wisdom. He loves wisdom. Because wisdom is essential to his own character. He is the source of wisdom. Wisdom has its very foundation in God. Wisdom rejoices in the truth. And God himself is truth. So it says God delighted in Solomon's prayer for wisdom. Wisdom was the right thing for Solomon to ask for. It was the right request for him to make. He desired the best thing. And so you see God responds to him in verse 11. God says, because you have, not, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life or riches nor the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be anyone like you among the kings all your days. We should recognize when we ask for wisdom, as you can see in this text, when we ask for wisdom, God delights to give it to us. The letter of James teaches the same thing in James 1 verse 5. If, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. That's a promise that we have from God. God delights to give wisdom to those who seek it from him. He's not stingy with the gift of wisdom. He's very generous with it if we're serious about pursuing it and asking it from him. And so we see Solomon desired the best thing and God delighted in it and was honored by it because by praying this, Solomon recognized that wisdom comes from God. God himself is the source of wisdom. True wisdom comes from him. And so as a result, you see, God promised to give Solomon even things that he didn't ask for. Riches and honor and long life if Solomon walked in his ways. We're reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things, food, drink, clothing, they will be added to you. The result of Solomon's wisdom was he was blessed in a thousand other ways. See, a life that is lived in the fear of the Lord is a life that is lived well. 
A life that is a life that, that flourishes. See, wisdom, as I mentioned, it begins with the fear of the Lord, but it extends into every other area of life. And that's what we see in Solomon's life. That's the focus of the next several chapters all the way to chapter 10. These chapters are there just to highlight all the different aspects of the wisdom that God, that, that God gave to Solomon. Wisdom has, has been defined somewhere as the skillful management of life. And it's a good definition because it shows how diverse the application of wisdom can be. Wisdom is the ability to live well. One commentator put it this way, there are many people who are smart enough to make a good living and yet not wise enough to make a good life. A life that begins with the fear of God then branches out into a delight for all that is true and right and good and God-honoring. And so the, the continued application of a life of wisdom leads to a life that is fulfilling, truly fulfilling, and God-honoring. See, the world defines a fulfilled life as a life that accumulates the most possessions or experiences the most pleasures. But a truly fulfilled life is a life that finds its meaning and purpose in God who gives it and then learns to understand the world that God has made, that works with the world that God has made to God's glory. And as a general rule, such a life leads to flourishing. Such a life works. See, folly doesn't work because folly looks at the world backwards. Folly doesn't embrace the truth. And so it doesn't know how to work with a world that God has created. You see this in the halls of academia, rejecting what is often blatantly true, the, the difference between men and women and things like that. And, and folly breaks down because it rejects God, and so it rejects the world that God has made. Folly, you could say it this way, folly uses a wrench to hammer a nail or a hammer to turn a screw and doesn't understand why everything keeps breaking. Wisdom embraces God and as a result embraces the world that God has made and studies it and lives well within it. It lives in God's world and flourishes. And so as I mentioned, the next several chapters of the book of Kings describe the wisdom of Solomon in all the hundreds of different ways it was manifested. The first part of chapter 4 describes Solomon's wisdom in economic affairs, in social programs, in military organization, his learning and knowledge of culture. You see, his wisdom was recognized by foreign countries. It was evident in the hundreds of little details in the construction of his palace and of the temple, in the splendor and the glory of his kingdom. Even the queen of Sheba came to hear his wisdom. And when she does, this is in chapter 10, she exclaims, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who get to continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has given you, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So wisdom begins with the fear of God, but it extends into every area of life. And, and true wisdom, you see this with the Queen of Sheba's response, true wisdom is inherently beautiful. It's attractive. It's winsome. There's something irresistibly attractive about a life that is wisely lived. And so you notice the result then of Solomon's wisdom. Solomon was blessed in every way imaginable, and God was glorified. 
You see that in the Queen of Sheba's response. She says, Blessed be the, be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Or you think of the, even the case of the two prostitutes in this chapter. The text emphasizes at the very end in verse 28 that the people recognize that Solomon's wisdom came from God. All Israel, it says in verse 28, heard the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So because wisdom comes from God and begins with the fear of God, then whenever it's demonstrated, it has the effect of glorifying the God who gave it. When people see true wisdom, they are compelled to glorify God. God is the one who's honored when his people live wisely. And so let's turn in just the last couple minutes that we have to a couple points of application. First, I want to pick up again on on the point that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we desire as a people to be wise, as Solomon was wise, then it must begin with a deep, holy reverence for God. Wisdom embraces the truth, and God is truth. Pieces of wisdom, yeah, sure, can be found apart from God, because people still live in the world that God has made. And so they can still make wise observations from the nature of the world itself. But without the knowledge of God to give light to the soul, even the wisest and most perceptive observers, men like Socrates or Plato or Buddha or Gandhi, will still be lost in darkness because they don't know the God at the, at the center of it. They don't know the truth himself. And this leads us to our second and probably most important point of application. True wisdom from God comes from and is found in Jesus Christ. I can't overstate this point. The New Testament is so emphatic about it in a number of places. In some places, Christ is even called the wisdom of God. You think of Colossians 2 verse 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 24, To those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's a strange expression. We might ask, how can Christ be the wisdom of God? How does that even make sense? Well, what it means is this. Wisdom is an essential characteristic of who God is, just like just like truth and love. And Christ is the radiance of all of God's glory, all of his attributes. So whatever perfections God has, wisdom, truth, beauty, power, holiness, Christ is the radiance of those perfections from God. In other words, when we look at Christ, we see God. God is seen in him through him, and all of God's perfections are also seen then in Christ. Christ is how God makes himself known. God is infinitely wise and beautifully wise, and that wisdom is seen in Christ. And so if Christ is the wisdom of God, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, as we saw a moment ago, then we can impress upon ourselves the fear of God, that that reverence and respect and desire for God by looking 
at Christ. We're taught by, by Christ to know God and to love Him and to respect Him and to desire Him. We're taught that through the Gospel of Christ. Apart from the Gospel, there is no knowledge of God. If we were not reconciled to God through Christ, in fact, we would not want any knowledge of God because any knowledge of God would be knowledge of judgment. So what's my point? It's this. If wisdom begins with the fear of God, then wisdom begins for us with the gospel. If we're going to be truly wise, wise in the sense that our entire lives are characterized by wisdom that comes from God, it must begin with the gospel. The gospel needs to dominate our thinking and our feeling and our doing. It needs to be the beginning and the the overruling pattern of our wisdom. You cannot know God except through the gospel, and you cannot be wise without the knowledge of God. So with the gospel as our foundation, then we can pursue wisdom. And so that's going to be my third and very, very brief final point of application. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, verse 13, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, because the gain from wisdom is better than the gain from silver, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. And that's exactly what we can see in Solomon's own life. He recognized that wisdom was the best thing for him to desire. He chose it over riches and honor and long life because it's better than any of those things. And the text here calls us then to make the same choice that Solomon made. As a redeemed people living in the joy of the gospel, now that we know God, let us also choose the best thing. Choose wisdom. Pursue it above anything and everything else. God delights in our pursuit of wisdom. And God is glorified when we attain it, when our lives demonstrate wisdom. Nothing is more valuable to you than a heart that listens. First, to God, and then also in a general sense to the world that God has made and to the wisdom that, uh, of those whom God has placed around us. So pursue that wisdom. Tune your heart to it above everything else. And then with your heart tuned to God's Word, from that standpoint, make it your every effort to cultivate a heart that is willing and ready to listen A good starting place for that is the book of Proverbs itself. Every verse contains instruction in the way of wisdom. It's of great benefit to us if we can take those verses to heart. And this is especially a point for young people. The book of Proverbs was written especially for you. You see it over and over again. He says, my son, my son, my son, listen to wisdom. And of course, the same is true for, for daughters. So, Learn Proverbs. Memorize it. Make it your every effort to understand its truths and to apply the book of Proverbs to your life. And in this, recognize we have a major advantage against the world. You don't have to look long to to figure it out. The world does not understand wisdom. It doesn't even get the very beginning of wisdom. It doesn't matter how smart people might be either. In fact, the places where you find the most foolishness is in the halls of academia. 
and in the universities. There they, they adamantly insist that up is down and, and right is wrong and, and ugly is beautiful. See, the unbelieving world will never understand or excel in the pursuit of wisdom because they're profoundly deceived about the very nature of life itself. They do not know God. And so because the path to wisdom begins in the gospel, Christians who know God, who who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to surpass the world in leaps and bounds in the attainment of wisdom. And we ought to do so. Think of how the Queen of Sheba was glorified by, or rather, think of how, how God was glorified when the Queen of Sheba came to, to Solomon and, to, and saw his wisdom. So it is with us. The, God is glorified when the world can see us living lives that are wise and beautiful. And as we've seen, that, that wisdom, it begins with the knowledge of God, but it extends into every area of our lives as we pursue God's will. The starting point for that is, of course, God's law. Think of how the, the Psalms praise the law of God as making wise the simple. That's the beauty of the Christian life. We're freed from the curse of the law so that we can start obeying God's law and finding life and wisdom in God's law. Think of the way that Moses described the law. He said to, to the people of Israel, this is Deuteronomy 4, keep these laws and do them because they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear these statutes will say, surely this is a great nation and a wise and understanding people. Oh, that that would be our testimony to the world around us. That they would see our renewed and beautiful lives and say, what a wise and beautiful God that these people must have and know. The way of life that Scripture shows us is the way of wisdom. We're freed from the curse of the law, so let's pursue obedience because the law is good, because the law gives life and joy. God didn't give his commandments to limit our joy, but in fact to maximize our joy in him. So then finally, brothers, let us seek wisdom. Let us pursue it with everything that we have. We know that to do that, we must begin with the gospel. True wisdom will never be found apart from God, and there's no way to God except through the gospel. We need to know our sins are covered by the blood of Christ if we're going to start pursuing wisdom. But then as those who have been reconciled, let's honor God. Let's honor the fact that he chose us to be his people by pursuing the wisdom that he calls us to for our own joy as a renewed creation, discovering this is what it means to really live, to really start living before God's face and to God's glory so that the world would see in us glimpses of what we have begun to see ourselves, the sweet, beautiful, precious, glorious, delightful wisdom of God himself. Amen.